Welcome to the TCM Challenge, a monthly movie review podcast where Matt and I challenge each other to watch some classic films. This month's movie is 1948's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And I'm Matt in Buffalo. And I'm Matt in Arizona. And we've got ourselves a stone cold classic here because I know this shows up on many AFI uh, lists. Yeah, I mean, Matt, I mean... I don't want to cut right to the end, but I'm going to pose a question to you is where does this rank in the TCM challenge movies? Is it top, top movie, top five, top two? I'm going to put you, put that question to you at the end. Cause I think okay. a lot of the reputations um, warranted for this. I'll just say, but before we get into that, we have to do our housekeeping. So this was your choice, Matt, and your options for April were Romance on the High Seas from 1948, another Michael Curtis movie, um, 1967's Up the Down Staircase, a drama, um, not really a standout one, I would say, for me, 1948's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, 1944's Arsenic and Old Lace, Frank Capra, Cary Grant classic also, and 1971's Summer of 42, a nice romance, quaint film, I would say. So, Matt, it was your choice. What led you to Treasure of Sierra Madre? And did you have any history coming into this? Um, so it was my choice because, I, like I said at the opening, it was uh, it was on those AFI lists and it was something that I always meant to get around to. I started watching AFI movies back in 2020 when we were all in quarantine to, to just give myself a hobby to not go crazy. Um, so this was on that list that I meant to get to see. I just didn't, but now I can. And as far as what I knew about it, I knew it was a Western. I knew Humphrey Bogart was in it. And I, you know, I think everybody knows about the stinking badges line. Which is always, always misquoted. Misquoted. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So before we get too much further, more housekeeping work. So this movie critically acclaimed at the time, but wasn't actually like a blockbuster by any means. It didn't make the top 10 grossing pictures in 1948. Those included the red shoes, red river, the pale face, a lot of Westerns here, the three musketeers, the snake pit, you know, homecoming, a lot of not really at the forefront of culture anymore movies from then. And then at the Academy Awards, it was critically acclaimed. So it was nominated for best picture, but Lawrence Olivier's Hamlet um, took on the overall prize that year. But Treasure of Sierra Madre won Best Director of John Huston, Best um, Screenplay by John Huston, and Best Supporting Actor by Walter um, Huston. Right. So it did get its acclaim. And I would say, I mean, Hamlet, I suppose, is up to debate, but not really. I think this is this one of the standout, if not the standout movie from 1948. And it's the one that's kind of stood the test of time and garnered this reputation, right? Yeah. Between the, on that list that you just read, I be, this and Snake Pit, I say would say are the best of 1948. Hmm. Can't I can't say I've movie. seen it. And actually, good psychological, my history... good, good psychological movie uh, if we ever get to it. Well, the wheels of fate will decide that. But yeah, similar history, I suppose, um, for me. I did see this before, back when those AFI lists came out with like their TV specials on 
ABC, I think, back in like 1999, 2000. So I saw it then, thought I remembered it, but on this rewatch, I'm like, man, there's vast amounts of this movie I have no recollection of. I thought the ending was totally different. So this was, for all intents and purposes, a fresh rewatch for me, and I enjoyed the hell out of it. So should we start walking through? Yeah, let's do it. So set in 1925, right off the bat, kind of like an interesting era of Old West, right? It's the end of it and past the end of it. So it's it's a Western, I suppose, but I've heard the f- term Western noir bantied about because it has a lot of those Maltese Falcon elements. Double it does. Cross, a lot of paranoia set that Humphrey happens Bogart. to be set in a Western. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it is a very unique kind of a setting, time, place, a lot of the themes and stuff. So it's not really a Western, right? But it takes place, at least part of it, in the Mexican city of uh, Tampico. And one of the big trivia parts of this is it's one of the very first American productions, Hollywood, Hollywood productions that was filmed predominantly significantly on location in Mexico and it shows. I, I, this is what I like about the movie that makes it unique from other Westerns is that, you know, we are talking about like a Western type setting, but it's not the American old West. It's it's the Mexican Western, which I kind of mm-hmm. like it, it. It's a nice, unique twist to it. And before, you know, I mean, we'll get into it at some point. I mean, banditos aside, this does show a lot of respect for the area. And there's a lot of themes towards like, you know, arguably for imperialism, white guys coming in, stealing the wealth of that region. But for the most part, it was filmed in Mexico, cast a lot of local actors. They're speaking Spanish unsubtitled. I know there's a lot it, it, of really it, it, interesting things here. I found out how much I, my Spanish, I, I've retained a lot of it because I was able to follow at least some of what they were saying because you're right. Like there's parts of this movie that are just in Spanish with no subtitles and you get context clues. But, you know, if, unless you speak the language, which I kind of do, you don't know what they're saying. Well, it's not even subtitled back then. They would have just had everybody speak English. For, right. You know, no reason in the universe, like kind of break that reality. And they didn't. So there's a lot of really nice kind of subtle um, cuts between um, sta- uh, soundstage work, but a lot of it's on location. Looks nice. It has a different vibe to it. But we're introduced to uh, Humphrey Bogart's character, Fred C. Dobbs, right off the bat. He is basically a broken or a broke drifter American working the streets, just begging for money, um, relentlessly John Huston in a cameo role, right? The director, the writer, the uh, son of one of the co-stars of the movie. He's this right. white American in a suit, you know, impeccable. Humphrey Bogart hits him up a few times and you see that he is, you get a pretty quick introduction to his character that he is kind of embarrassed for this, but kind of still shameless with it. Because it's like if he paid any attention, he would note that the crazy white suited tall American, he's hitting him up relentlessly. So it's the complex character. He's embarrassed for it, but also shameless at the same time, juxtaposing right off the bat. Makes me wonder how he ended up in Mexico. 
I mean, I know that's not something they that they explore, but still. Well, that's the a really interesting thing because you get three um, layered characters. Eventually, it's Dobbs, Humphrey Bogart, Tim Holt as Curtin, and you know this scene stealer uh, Walter Hudson as Howard. You get these three guys, and you don't get really any significant amount of backstory to them, right? In any real way, but they you can tell that there's a lot of weird history that landed them down in central Mexico without a penny to their name. Yeah, and right? believe me, I, it's not it's not that it's a criticism that there's no backstory. Oh, no. I'm just I'm just intensely curious as to how they ended up here. But, oh, don't know. get me wrong, I love it, <clears throat> right? Because you can tell that like Humphrey Bogart, his character Dobbs, probably wasn't totally on the up and up. I would maybe kind of guess that was the vibe I got, how he ended up there. Maybe on the run for something, but again, it's not really defined. Tim Holt's character will be introduced to him. He has a quite a bit more of like innocence tough to say, but he, he's a little bit more good natured. He's like running away from something bad, maybe. Whereas like I could argue Dobbs is running from the law. (laughs) something like that very rough maybe i'm misreading and then howard um walter hudson's just kind of like an adventurer i would say oh yeah sorry yes he's kind of a adventurer just that by happenstance kind of ends up there right but when we're introduced to him we're led to believe that he thinks his adventuring days are behind him right and that's just where the buck stopped (laughs) it was in mexico So we're introduced to him. He's around bumming around. Um, There's a quick moment, kind of like blink blink and you miss it. Basically the only female character in the movie was a woman who walks by after he has a peso in his hand. It's one of that, just that awesome kind of subtle blink and you miss it kind of hidden subtext in the movie. She's a prostitute. And as soon as he got a buck in his pocket, he shaved himself and went to her, um, to her room. I don't know if he even yeah. picked up on that, but a hundred percent. That's what it was. He saw a I mean, yes, for, after. Yeah. For, that, that's as close as you're going to get in 1948. But yes, I, I picked up on it. I just, that stuff I just adore. Right. It's like all the little. The things we can slip under the, that, yeah, the things we can slip under innocent. the haze code. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, you think all these movies didn't have sex in it. Oh yeah, they did. Right. It's just, it's not overt. This has a decapitation in it. Right. But you're not yeah. allowed to see it. Right. So it's yeah. just, I love all those little cues. So anyhow, he Dobbs ends up running into another vagrant, uh, in a, basically they're sleeping on park benches. Right. And this is the Tim Holt, a lot of very interesting staging in this, um, you know, the John Houston's direction was just, it's impeccable. So yes. this is not just a, you know, throw it out, churn out a Western adventure. There's a lot of craft and skill to this. And just, no, I mean, this, there, there, oh, there's a region. He, there's a reason he's a legend and this is part of it. Yeah. I mean, his first movies, uh, Maltese Falcon for God's sakes. Right. Yeah, I know. So, it's just to say that in this scene, just there's interesting staging. It's it's unless you're really looking for it, you don't realize that this is back to a, st- a sound stage. It doesn't have that yeah. jarringness of like you know a lot when of you, movies at that time. 
when you mentioned it, I, I kind of thought back in my head, it's like, I don't recall feeling that this was ever on a soundstage. It felt so real. Yeah. I mean, it's only just cause I looked at it a little closer for the podcast. Right. Cause I knew it was shot on location. And then you just, if you look a little bit, you can tell it's like a rear projection. I mean, even if, but even in black, yeah, it's hidden. And even in black and white, you know, you get some gorgeous vistas in this of the, of the Mexican desert. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's not necessarily like overtly hit you in the face, beautiful, like, you know, cinematography all over the place, but it's again, just the craft is all over this. So those two guys down on their luck basically get suckered into working as roughnecks on a construction site for $8 a day. And I'm not sure how long it was, but implied like a week or two or something like that. Right. They come back. They're immediately stiffed by this guy. What was it? McCormick. McCormick. Yeah. And you could tell, uh, you could tell was a con artist from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, they kind of smelled him out on that. But then fell for just this second level thing. So it well, does. I mean, maybe... when you when you have nothing, you'll try anything. So I mean, well, they wanted to follow him to get the money, and then he's like, "Go to this beer place, you know, or just go to the beer place, go to this bar, right?" And then they fell for that. So it's it's it it does make you wonder, like, if Hobbs Bogart was like that street smart he's running from the law or running from some demons up there. If he would have fell for that. I don't know. I mean, it, it's again, desperate guys, how they react to desperation. They fall for stuff. It's all, this movie's all about trust, trusting yourself, trusting others. So it, it totally kind of works. Right. And how circumstances corrupt. Oh yeah. So <laughs> cut to, I mean, jumping around just a little bit, but they end up finding him. Right. And, it's a fun bar scene. They end up like yeah, they beat the shit out of each other, man. It's fun. But that's a good fight too. I mean, yeah, just it is a good fight. all over the place. I mean, just the craft about like, you know, something popping in and out of here, notwithstanding, but it's a good fight and it like has ebbs and flows and it's pretty brutal and it's, it's a fun fight, right? It's not cinematic. It's just kind of dirty. You could see like punches in the crotch, like kind of a, fight if this wasn't 1948 like low blows and stuff but it's interesting they have the opportunity to really rob this guy right but they only well, took know, the money I'm, that was owed i'm glad that they win because i was wondering i was afraid they were going to do the hollywood thing of the con artist gets away with it but yeah that was satisfying. yeah i mean that's kind of the Cohen brothers thing where, you know, John Goodman actually wins the fight and walks off at the end. That, yeah. that could have happened in this, but it didn't. Right. So in between all that is they're basically staying at a 50 cent centavo per night flop house. Just a imagine house, what yeah. this place must've smelled like, right. A bunch of old prospectors and just homeless dudes living in there. It's probably 137 degrees and all that. But they go in there and again, the guy just steals the film. It's um, John Houston's character, right? He cut, he's going to do that a lot. <laughs> I know it's going to, it's just all over the place. Yeah. It's I his dad. I, he, he, I pause. He, he, he gave his dad the plum part. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, when that was coming up, um, Walter 
Houston actually told his kid, I want you to write me an award-winning part, right? And give it to your old man. And he did. And it's inspired. He, the The son talked him into taking out his teeth. He's handsome as hell in this, by the way, when he's a little bit more cleaned up, even without his teeth. He is a magnetic dude in this movie. The way oh, he yeah. speaks, when he spins a tail, there's layers to him. Uh, totally deserving of the best supporting actor, I think, clearly. But the second you see him, just the way that he just spins like the knowledge. I could see how two desperate dudes like Curtin and Dobbs would fall for it but it's not even falling for it because the guy backs up what he was talking about. Right. And specifically yeah, what he's talking about. He, right. And specifically what he's talking about is his time as a prospector and, and finding gold and striking it rich. Right. So we also jumped over, it's not a cameo per se, but little Robert Blake was in this movie. Did you notice that? Did you pick up on that trivia? He's the little newspaper sales boy who uh, sold, Dobbs the lotto ticket in the bar. No, I didn't. Yeah, little Robert Blake. Um, so at the beginning, it's like a weird little theme in the movie. I don't know what to really make of it, but at several points, Dobbs, when faced with luck going his way, he pushes it away. The lotto ticket, he initially pushes it away, right? Um, he pushes away a couple other things with like um, the, the, the eventual gold site is right where he's quitting. He pushes away right. the luck there and he also seizes the fool's gold. So it's all of his instincts are wrong throughout this, or he's arguing against luck and all that kind of stuff. I don't know what to really make of it. Maybe we figure it out as we talk through, but that is like a trend in this. He has the initial wrong response to whatever is like the fortuitous event that's looking. Well, at yeah, him. but I, but I, I kind of think it's a wonderful character irony that when the fortuitous event does happen for him and he gives into it, it corrupts his morality. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. So we do find out that he wins this lottery. They basically got 200 bucks a piece, right? Um, plus 200 of a mini lottery. And they figured that's enough to now go in under, you know, go in on a business arrangement with, um, you know, Houston and the three of them, plus the extra share um, from Dobbs, they're going to go in on some gold mining. And I just love the moment where in their naivete, Curtin and Dobbs are enthusiastic, shaking hands. And it shows you Houston sitting there going, history is repeating itself. I've seen this play out in probably every permutation of this scenario. So it's just like, you don't see it. He doesn't really make a big deal of it, but you can see in how the character's reacting. Like he's got his magic eight ball out, his crystal ball. Yeah. He, he can see how and he pretty much says, he pretty much says, I've seen what gold does to, to people's souls. Yep. And he, you know, calls it out, right? Like, you don't know how to set your limits. You don't know how to walk away. And it is a little thing at various points when they check in, like, what's the walk away point from all these characters? They all increase over time. Right? Even Houston, who has the most experience of anyone who's won and lost this multiple times, his comfort level for walking away continues to go up to show that even he is not entirely 
you know, immune to the stuff that's going to happen. Yeah, he, he almost gets roped back into it. Right. So they buy up all their equipment. They hop on a train, uh, leaving Tampico to basically, well, the Sierra Madre. <laughs> it's titular. So they go on this train and we get our first very cool, I would say, introduction to, um, I guess, the antagonist of the film for lack of a gold hat turn gold hat. Right. This actor's awesome. I mean, we see it later on, but this guy's been in hundreds of Mexican films and he's just a gold mine. What a fine. Well, and I mean, he's forever immortal because later in the film, he's going to have the stinking badges line that everyone knows. Oh yeah. Alfonso, uh, something or other. I I think. Yeah. And he's just fantastic in this. I mean, Arguably, (laughs) that scene, um, the dancing at the gold discovery is, for me, the best part of the movie. Um, But the stinking badges is also just wildly iconic. But we're introduced to... I I was going to say, well, you were about to to get to it, but I was going to say this is a pretty cool train robbery scene. Oh, yeah. I mean, the shootout battle that's happening between all of our heroes inside the train the banditos attacking it it's a it is an exciting scene and the characters get carried away with it too like they're swept up in their adventure that they're heading off to well i love that the conversation as soon as it's over is how many did you get and humphrey bogart's all proud that he you know shot close to the gold hat guy yeah i mean all but literally like knee slapping like not recognizing again the fate that's coming their way Right. It's all this. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't expect those banditos to show back up and behead you later on in the movie. But it's just like the wheels of fate. Luck is oh, a yeah, big thing it, in this it, movie. It's all over the place and not seeing it's, it. It's the wheels of fate. And it's very much a case of pride goeth before the fall. Mm-hmm. So we get a montage basically of them trudging through just wilderness, awful stuff. Uh, Houston's basically telling them we got to get off to basically where there's nothing in the map areas that aren't picked over. We have to dive deep into the, the wilderness. And by the way, his character is such a crazy, obvious inspiration for like Yukon Cornelius and in Toy Story 2, the prospector that's in that. Put yeah. them side by side there. Yeah. This is where they got it from. Right. And it, 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 if you're going to ape, ape from the best. So they're trudging through all on, you know, lots of it, at least on location. And then they're like, it's later on, but like reading some of the background, even like little insert shots where they're just camped. That's on location. You would think they would have just done that in the studio, but nope, nope. It's, it's on location. It's, no, it, and it feels yeah. on location too, which is great. Yeah. At least the majority I think they did do some pickups in, California and stuff like that. But the majority was shot on location and just the grittiness, how dirty they get. This is not a glamorous movie. And I think a bit of that's informed by John Houston's um, World War II experience. Did you, are you familiar with any of that kind of background of him as like, no, a, I wasn't not as a, not as a war correspondent, but he, so he did Maltese Falcon, right? 41, I think. Yeah. Something like about. that. 
uh, then went off to the war and was not a war correspondent, but like a documentary uh, filmmaker for, uh, I think maybe the Navy, the army doesn't really matter. Oh, I didn't know that. But, That's cool. And he went off and filmed like um, some film strips for the Italy campaign. Uh-huh. And apparently the senior brass hated it because he would juxtapose showing American soldiers laughing having a good time and then cut to their bodies dead the next day after a battle. So it was not this glamorous stuff. So he was a very earthy, very real, you know, stuff. He wasn't doing but the war, propaganda I mean, kind of stuff. Yeah. War is war isn't glamorous. I mean, he had some quote, I can't directly quote it, but people said like, um, why'd you do that stuff? And he's like, well, if I was glamorizing war, I would just shoot myself. Right. You you can't come back or you can't go off and glamorize the war when you're there. So I think that directly informs a lot of this. I think he knows that this is not the movie to make like the sterile Western. It's something. No, they're supposed to be on. Yeah, exactly. And it's like the, you know, the environment as an extra character, pulling these guys down further and further. Um, and they're just so, so, yeah. so, so desperate for anything that they, they get fooled by the fool's gold. And that's one of the scenes I really liked, right? It's that throwing water around, just this emphasizing the fool, right? It's seeing something and grasping at the wrong moment. Bogart was like the main person doing that. And Howard, you know, Houston, just shit all over it basically only to have like, you know, we're told maybe days later, something like that. They continue to trudge up. And just as Dobbs is ready to quit, this is my favorite part of the movie. (laughs) It's Walter Houston turns to him and he just dresses him down, just calls him like stupid idiots repeatedly as he's doing the most hilarious just oh my god it's wonderful prospector dang gummit dance and it's just yeah. the funniest goddamn thing in the world i just loved it no it, it it's awesome and and of course he's making fun of them because a he knew that was going to happen with these you know boys who don't know what they're getting into and b he's quitting just as they struck pay dirt Yep, because he does literally the Yukon Cornelius thing. He can taste it in the air, you know, all but short of throwing up the pick and then licking it, right? So he can just sense it there. So cut to basically they're establishing their camp. They talk about like hide it, you know, so if anybody stumbles on it, we can like plausibly deny and say that we're up here hunting. We don't want anybody, you know jumping our claim well they're not claiming right this is all just a unofficial claiming right they don't want anybody stealing their claim um and then they get to work and it's walter houston showing them the ropes sluice pans like it just sound it seems just horrible right three dudes a couple burrows up on a mountain digging out mining it out and they basically start to slowly but surely accumulating gold right there they've it's not exactly pay dirt there's not nuggets just falling from the trees it's but dust. they're working at it right yep so um, they're going through that and, go on well I, I was gonna say this is the part of the movie where each of them start i mean they were already distinguished characters to begin with but this is where each of their 
um, consciences begin to distinguish themselves from one another. Uh, this is when Humphrey Bogart starts becoming more paranoid and distrustful. You know, Howard has always been the the, the more centered leader. And really, the, the character that I came to like a lot, Curtin, is starting to develop as kind of like, you know, the, the person with a sense of morality on this journey. Yeah, I mean, he'll get lost in just the big theatrics of Walter Houston, Humphrey Bogart, right? Sure. But Tim, Tim Holt, Curtin, he's pretty awesome in this. He just I mean, is. and there's one moment that defines that character for me. And, you know, it, it comes as they're, you know, set up this rig and that they're they're getting this dust out from caves and stuff. And there's one point where um, there's a cave in that traps Humphrey Bogart and uh, Curtin sees it happen. And he goes in to, to rescue him, walks away for a minute, thinking maybe not leave him on his own. And then he comes back and actually does rescue him. That moment defines the character of Curtin for me. Yeah, it's basically three gradients, right? It's... Where is healthy paranoia? Because Houston Howard there said this this is going to come with it, right? People will stab you in the back once money's in hand. So there's healthy paranoia. I don't think the movie is saying that you shouldn't be have healthy amounts of this. But then how each one of them, if they do it all, descend into the unhealthy paranoia is different. And Holtz was, he realized where that unhealthy line was at that point but once we get introduced to cody our fourth character in this it kind of really changes the dynamics a little bit i would argue right it wavers but then what happens with that storyline ends up reverting him back to this moral center well just by fate again yeah so i mean well i guess we can just go to it so well before that they're getting this money they're starting to see it actually accumulate right so humphrey bogart's like when do we now start to split this up and hide our individual goods is what they end up calling it right so pretty quickly they each have what about five thousand dollars of 1925 money is not insignificant i forget what the inflation calculator results were but it's start dividing it up and this is where they're going out to listen for like animals that might be there. And each one of them in turn has a paranoia check on that. So you're seeing like the pot starting to boil a little bit here. The part starting to boil, it starts to boil over a little bit with Dobbs with the, uh, the Gila monster scene, which I really like. Cause those, I mean, I live in the desert. Those things are nasty when you see them. So, um, I, I, I like never that. really knew they 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 were that bad that they just bite and don't let go. Oh yeah, they they're poison. nasty little fuckers. Yeah. Oh, I I didn't know that up you know up in the <laughs> Buffalo region we have different things to worry about. So yeah, I mean that's the one where Holt sees this heel monster and he's gonna just probably flip a rock over and kill it right, but that happens to be where Dobbs Bogart is hiding his money. And he's one of the first to start pulling his gun on others out of this paranoia. Right. And Curtin's just like, you f- stupid fool. I'm not trying to do You're that. trying to you help stick you. your hand under there. Yeah. So this is, you're seeing that Bogart at this point, if it wasn't obvious, he's really starting to slip. Right. 
is this also where he's starting to uh, talk to himself in just crazy rambling muttering uh, while he's working after? I think, I think, I th- yeah, I think it's, it start. I think it starts here. Yeah. Right. So next is just, it's straight out of a Quentin Tarantino movie, or I should say Quentin Tarantino took this straight out of this and put it into his movies because we get the disrupting fourth presence here. So, the people that, you know, our three, uh, pro, you know, air quotes protagonists have to make a trip down to the village to get some stores. They go down this time. It's Tim Holt. He goes down and as he's there, he runs into another American stranger, Cody, who is out. Not overtly threatening by any means, but enough kind of unsettling that it puts you on edge pretty much immediately. He's asking questions, Tim Holt spinning his lies. I think he knows it's not going to work. Holt or Cody is not calling he, him out on it or anything he, like that. He's a, he's a finesser. Cody is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what Tim Holt tries to like steer him wrong. And I'm just like, I'm up there, um, you know, hunting, but Cody's hunting, obviously yeah, out hunting. looking for gold, right? So Holt Curtin makes his way back to camp and he has a sit down with Dobbs and Howard and he starts talking about, yeah, I kept looking back. Yeah, you know, I was looking for him to follow. And they're like, well, do you think he's going to show up here? And Howard's like, yeah, I think he's here right now. And you just look. Yeah, up I love that line. He's there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then this whole sequence for me, like I said, this is straight out of a Quentin Tarantino movie of just percolating tension. It could go bad at any second. If it was a Tarantino thing, each one of these segments would be a 20 minute scene in and of itself. Cause like, you know, inglorious bastards, he was I'm just saying glorious bastards with the, with the, with the card game. Yeah. Yes. And also the scene at the beginning, right. With the, in the, the farmhouse. Uh, oh the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple scenes where it's just like, there is tension here. There is unspoken danger just up and it could crack at any moment. Right. So basically he lays out the, the options to them of what was it? Um, you could kill me, but you know, that opens up a bunch of problems. And I'm like, I wasn't entirely convinced of that. Like that felt like that was overly hopeful. It feels pretty I was easy gonna to say, kill this dude. What, I was going to say, what do you, what do you with that, with that scenario? I was like, I commend your, your, your smooth talking skills, but you didn't necessarily sell me on the fact that killing you wouldn't be a better option. But that goes to like the character stuff. As we find, he was wildly desperate himself and the dude's hulking. He was going to be uh, one of the first choices for Tarzan, but you're oh, really? supposed to. Yes. And I think he got um, uh, Johnny Weissmuller got it. I think he got injured, but he's like a star athlete. This dude's huge. Right. I mean, it's kind of hidden, but he's a big dude. But we're supposed to think like he's starving, which that didn't really come across. But the way he gobbled up the food, it's it's on the script that he's supposed to be starving. I don't right. think it entirely got across. But you can see that he's doing the same thing that our main three guys are. But from the outside, he's taking this Hail Mary kind of attempt. I, and he's trying his best to argue like you can't kill me. But everything we've seen is, yeah, they can probably pretty easily kill him, right? Shoot him. Nobody's going to find him. Yeah, him there's the there's nothing out here. Yeah. 
Yeah. Or like they said, just throw him down the cliff, bash his head in with a rock. And then if any off chance, the federales show up, we can deny. Right. So he basically says the hat, but it's like, it's not going to work or you cut me in and I'll just help and I'll just get in on this with you. Right. But I'm not only going to take the money I earn going forward. The rest of your haul is fair. So he's right. trying to be kind of fair with it. Um, and then the three characters, he basically goes up and I'm just like, listen, I'm going to go up there and, you know, take a nap. Right. I'll let you guys have this discussion. And again, this is the Tarantino type of thing where they sit down and the characters kind of lay out each and they all kind of talk themselves up or down to being able to kill him. Dobbs is like, let's kill him. Right. Howard doesn't want to, but he's to suggest like it suggests that he's done this before. He's like, yes, I can do this. Like he was kind of almost offended that he didn't have the guts to do it because he may have done this before. Right. Yeah. That's the impression I got. And then, you know, bringing the question and that line of the morality curtain didn't take all that against convincing. Yeah. Well, initially, but he does go. I mean, no, I'm saying he he go he goes uh, he goes against uh, his morality and and decides to side with uh, with Dobbs. Right. And the thing is, they all pull their guns. They all in um, one of um, Cody's questionable logic things again was is. If you kill me, one of you is going to have to live with it. And it's like, well, I don't think Dobbs is going to care all that much. I was going to say that that's assuming all, all three. Well, dude. That was assuming all three have a conscience. Right. Or you just need one guy who does. Yeah, that's all you need is one guy who doesn't. Right. Who's desperate. Right. And so they all pull their guns. And it, I mean, there's nothing to think that they're not going to go up to that hill and kill him. Right. They but, had but every it, intention of doing it. But saved but by the gold hat. Yeah. So what Cody points out is, hey, down there, look at this. Coming up the hill are a bunch of banditos, right? And what we find out is it's the same ones who robbed the train. So they agree, well, our hands are kind of forced. We're outnumbered, what, 20 to 4 or something like that in that range. I guess we need to team up. So they agree to put their difference behind them for at least the moment. Pistols in hand, they set an ambush and they just have their beans, get ready for the fight that's about to come. They settle in and again, a modern tense kind of scene. It's they're about to walk away. It seemed like this is, again, characters speaking Spanish. Most of our characters don't even know what they're saying. They're weighing, walking away, and then just a couple of them just decide to start walking up this hill that would have just like literally stepped on Bogart, right? So he has to just shout out to him, you know, stop what you're doing. And then you get your stinking badges part, and you see Gold Hat actually speak for the first time. And again, just a wonderful character, really shines later on too, but this is because he. Cool. Well, where it comes from is he's he says he's he claims they're all federales, which is the the Mexican mounted police, and that's when Bogart says, you know, where are your badges, and that's where you get the line, right? So doesn't fly. They try and you know sucker him in of like, oh yeah, we're just gonna leave, but then the banditos attack, shootout ensues. They kill a few of them, but then the federales are 
you know, here, presumably hear the gun battle and the real ones. Come. Yeah. Yes. The real ones who we did see earlier on are catching these guys and executing them in villages. They're making quite a big show of it. I know. I love the, the story and you see it later at the end too. Uh, they capture these guys, they make them dig their own graves and then just shoot them. Oh, I mean, don't let me forget. Like, okay, I'll take everything back. My favorite part's right at the end with Gold Hat, but um, we'll get to that in a little bit. So anyhow, they run off. The Federales are chasing them, right? And they're just not going to stop. So, okay. Hey, our guys win. They go and check on Cody and just, again, I think this is, this is the, the war film mentality he doesn't get shot it's not glamorous he's just slumped over he got hit by a stray just bad dumb stupid luck right nothing glamorous Mm. about it whatsoever um and that is cool i i think right it's just a quite nice touch so this is what you kind of mentioned earlier like we we get the letter and you see curtain's actual character come back out right revert yeah he he feels really guilty this is probably the thing that saves him right Uh, because he had his come to jesus moment maybe with this letter because he Mm -hmm. saw he was going to go downhill and then he saw what he was almost going to do at dobbs at one point i think this is kind of locks him into being on the more golden path coming out right skipped over it but what at one point around the campfire, they talk about each one of them goes in turn of what they'll do with their money. And Houston's was basically retire, open a shop, right? Just quit this life, do something else. Right. Uh, curtains is run an orchard. Like I did as a child, right? He just wants to revert back to a simple kind of happy life with that. And then Dobbs is materialistic. He's just going to blow it. Right. He'll he'll go through that fortune instantaneously. Gamble it. Just waste it. Right. Prostitutes. Yeah. Very that's, superficial I was going to say the, it's, it's a it's the hook, hookers and blow sort of uh, logic. Oh, yeah. And by the way, throughout all this, Humphrey Bogart's got full out crazy eyes. Like I couldn't put my finger on who he was. Crazy eyes. Me of. And, it, you know, over the course of this movie, he grows the crazy beard. Oh, yeah. Uh, he switches between several different wigs throughout this, each one more caked than the last. Uh, he was totally bald by the time of this filming, so it worked. I think the wigs were mostly convincing, except for the one where he got the haircut. That was bad times. Uh, that was a real bad wig. So what you see in this letter is Cody, and I think it retroactively informs a lot of his decisions. He is absolutely dirt poor went to very desperate means to probably support his wife and children who are on an orchard. And it's a damn sad kind of letter. And you I see know how each one of the guys react to it. Because it's this, it's the old, you know, this was the last adventure before retirement for him. And of course that's the one he's, he gets killed on. Well, it's the last adventure of a bunch of string of failures, right? It, it looks well, like he's I mean. the opposite it's, of Houston. Yeah. But because, you know, it's the last, it's, you know, it's that three days away from retirement joke. Yeah. I mean, it's really sad. It's basically his wife saying like, listen, if this doesn't work, just please come home. He's not running from anything. He's out trying to provide for the family. And right. it's a tough one because he was kind of positioned as this wild card threat in a lot of ways. So 
very cool. And one of the things, it's no dialogue, but watch Humphrey Bogart's face during the reading of this. You have no idea what he's thinking, but it, you can tell it's like a string of crazy thoughts, like complete disconnect from reality. No words. They show him as he's lighting that cigarette, but you can just see he's having a really hard time processing it. Like, that's what he's thinking is like, I, ju- I can't. It's frying my brain. I can't process what this is, I think. But it's not just like a easy answer. It's a lot of kind of unspoken character stuff. Again, just a tremendous amount of depth. I think this is probably one of the more complex movies from that era. Anti-heroes yeah. coming back from the war, like the concept of anti-heroes are starting to show up too, right? So anyhow, they more or less, well, they have discussions of like, you know what? The softy curtains, like I'm going to give, I think we should give his widow a quarter of our haul. In which case I'm a little bit more on the side of Dobbs here. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not going to give this widow to a guy who just came in and tried to start strong arm us. Oh, man, right? you selfish like, prick. Oh, please. Oh, man, <laughs> you over here, you uh, softy. Come on. Our, you know. But it's interesting. It's like that they make that jump, right? I mean, it's all moot in the end, but it's it's interesting that like from the extreme of I'm going to kill him to like, oh, man, I, I fucked up. My moral compass got really messed up there. I got to overcorrect even. Right. So I, I don't know. It's it's not a criticism by any means. It's just it's interesting. Yeah, I, I, that, they I, went that way. I'm not criticizing them. I'm criticizing you, you selfish bastard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, listeners, um, tweet us. Would you give a quarter of your money to a stranger's wife? Um, and he, for all you know, maybe he stole that letter off of somebody else he killed. I mean, as someone know. who was the sole provider of their home, and I think mentioned he had a kid. You don't know any of that's true. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, now we're pretty much getting to the point where the mountain's running dry. They got, oh, 35,000 each 1925 buck, I think was the final point or is it 60 either way? They got more than enough than they ever really need. Right. And a really like, wow. Progressive thing of Houston saying, you know, we need to heal the mountain. (laughs) I didn't expect this at all. They have to fill in their mining hole. They have to break down what they did. They owe it to the mountain mother nature of we pull this out of it. It's not just, you know, rape the land. It's pay it back. Right. And they all actually kind of like, well, Dobbs kind of just snickers at it kind of a thing, but he does it. Right. So that's kind of like a surprising progressive kind of an idea in this well i mean that's it plays to, to howard's character because he's he's the experienced prospector who's done this before and i think respects the the craft that goes into it there's something to be said for karma throughout this too i mean yeah the people who are deserving get their rewards in one way or another and this and what we see with the you know the young indian boy coming up is part of that too so they pack up, they each take all their money with them. A lot of paranoia now that all their money is in sight of each other instead of hidden, hidden in a hole somewhere else. It's just sitting right there looking at them. So they trudge their way back in the middle of the woods. Again, uh, local actors, 
um, a bunch of Native Americans arrive, communicate that they have a sick child. Houston offers to go off, and due to just some old-timey um, Boy Scout stuff, he basically saves the child that probably would have been just fine anyhow. Um, nice. I was wondering kind of what, what that was with the raising the arms up and down and all this, you know. I, <laughs> it's It's nothing, but he, you know, it's just... That's the karma thing. Yeah. He gets rewarded because he put the effort in. He didn't yeah, it's, just it's, it's, it's say a, no, it, right? It's it's the fact that he went to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And also that scene just is beautifully composed. Shot in a real village, I think. It looks like a cathedral, how everybody's just arranged, like flowing back from the camera. Really damn cool. And when he just like, my work here is done, he walks off through them, like a hundred extras, if you know, not more. Just gorgeous. Super yeah. cool stuff, right? So he did leave his money with the two guys during this time where Dobbs basically floats the idea of like, Hey, half is better than the third or a quarter you sucker. So it's that growing paranoia, but he comes back and then the Indians come back and basically say, say, I'm not going to take no for an answer here. You're coming back and you're going to be our, um, (laughs) our guest and live in luxury coming up and they just drag him back and Houston I think he knows that I I love the fact that Dobbs thinks he means all three of them have to go and when he starts to get testy about it the the Native American guy said who basically says who invited you I'm not asking you so it is like a a, probably a misread from um, Houston that's kind of like a rare one he didn't think that the native American Indians um, would be trustworthy to have that much gold with them. Right. But what we're kind of shown eventually is, yeah, they probably would have been. Yeah. Um, So he ends up leaving the money with them. He basically says goodbye to it. I think he realizes and says, all right, I'm going to meet you back in the village. Watch my goods for me. And then (laughs) there you go. So, uh, uh, Matt, before we go any further, can we just take like a quick 30 second pause? Because I have to use oh, the bathroom real quick. Go for it. I'll be right back. <clears throat> I'm going to cough the whole time you're gone. Thanks. Sorry about that. Oh, yeah, no problem. I mean, it's only a matter of time before my kid comes down during a recording and we have to take a half an hour break or something. (laughs) All right. Well, that's easy to edit around. So, okay. So 
now that, you know, the peacekeeper third party is gone, pretty much we rushed to what the inevitable outcome was going to be here. It's just Dobbs and Curtin alone with all the goods. And Dobbs is like completely disconnected from reality at this point. And now he's oh, yeah, he's gone. There you go. Just totally gone. Right. So he sees that there's just one obstacle in his way now. Um, but Curtin susses this out, basically gets the drop on him and gets the gun and disarms. And well, not totally disarms, but takes the bullets away from Dobbs. And basically, if, you know, Dobbs is already gone, put in a shit ton of sleep deprivation here now. And there's no coming back. So Dobbs basically maniacally laughing at a campfire is like, I bet you you're going to fall asleep before I do. And yeah, you know, I'm just going to kill you. I'm going to crush your head with a rock as soon as you fall asleep. And it's crazy, detached, scary. Humphrey Bogart just laughing oh. at a campfire. Right. Oh, it's sociopathic. It's it's yeah. Very scary. Yeah, so what you get is, I don't know where he smuggled all the meth with him, but Dobbs stays awake just getting crazier and crazier over the next day or two. Yeah, he, I mean, again, it's 1948, but he looks methed out. Oh, yeah, I mean, he's just still up, and he's wired, and he's ready to go. But Curtin's, like, head nodding, right? So I don't know if it's, like, two days. Like, how long would he go when he knows that dude's going to kill you? How long do you stay up for? So it's pretty bad when he's walking and almost falling down middle yeah. of the woods. But it's like, oh, no, this isn't going to go. I, I mean, I, I, I feel bad for him because it's a losing battle. Yeah. And this is where you saw that letter changed him, because if he had I mean, Matt, you'll you argue with me. But if you're in the middle of the woods, not the woods, but the middle of the desert and Humphrey Bogart is just staring at you, willing to kill you to get all that money. Do you just go, listen, there's no good outcome from this. If we get to that village, I'm not going to be safe. This is self-defense, I'm going to argue. Is it murder? Oh, I'm not you mean legally. Uh, kill him before he not kills legally. you? Yeah, I mean, at this point, he's changed. He was going to kill Cody, but that letter made him realize, I cannot go past that, no. even to the fault here. That's going to cost him his life, nearly. No, I'm actually... I'm actually in, in favor of killing before he kills you because it's not like Curtin didn't try. He's not been, it's not like he's not been trying this whole time to try to, you know, get him straight. Right. So, I mean, this is the thing. And, and again, this is the man who, who, you know, put himself in danger to rescue him from the cave in. So, I mean, he's given him worlds of opportunity. Yeah. I mean, arguably the Gila monster too. Uh, it's, that's the thing. It's like, personal decisions in this where it costs you where karma comes through karma hits all the time of this and because he didn't kill him you know curtain ends up surviving when he does get disarmed by dobbs dobbs a really rough old act and grabs him by his hair shakes him around like that's pretty damn you know rough for the time marches him off to the woods and shoots him and it's like a little bit of a like a misdirect, like the way it's staged, the way Humphrey Bogart walks back in. You're almost led to think that he'll fall down and the reveal is he was actually the one shot. Right. No, he actually just tried to execute Curtin off screen and shot him twice. But he's so sleep deprived and, and methed out, uh, basically got him in the shoulder. 
gut shot and I think a shoulder, right? So nothing. Um, Non-fate. Right. But you get like crazy, crazy, like monologuing just. Oh, yeah. And this is when discussion my, fa- my favorite piece of, of cinematography is where the fire just completely takes over his face and, and transition. We transition to another shot. Can't say that's subtle, but yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> right. It's not subtle. I just like the way it was used. Oh, no. Yeah, it's a, it's pretty on the nose, but it it's it's awesome, right? He's fully engulfed. He's totally gone. Karma is going to hit him. He's all but dragged to hell in that moment, right? But he's like, you know, yeah, I'll go car- back in the morning. Maybe I, I didn't kill say, him. Karma and the Hayes Code is going to get him because you can't kill on screen without getting punished. That's true, too. <laughs> yes, <laughs> good point. So, um, but I love that he's even, he just his paranoia is like out of control. It, it's warranted, right? But he's like... Uh, did I actually kill him? I'm not going to go back. I can't go to look at it. And he's just like talking himself in and out of just checking out. No, I mean, it's, it's pretty much the, you know, the, if we're getting Shakespearean here, it's the, it's the, you know, Lady Macbeth out damn spot moment for him. Yep. But what you end up seeing is curtain was knocked out. He's not dead. And he manages to crawl away and, you know, hide behind a bush for the night, but he ends up getting away and eventually gets found by the same tribe, Native Americans, uh, Indians that um, Houston's been hooked up with. He works his magic again to heal, you know, heal um, Curtin here. And basically he can start to recuperate. It's actually not all that bad. But we find Dobbs is now fleeing away. And again, just another Tarantino scene here. So he's completely dehydrated. He's on this road. He's getting pretty close back to, you know, air quote civilization. Finds this water hole and lo and behold, gold it's not, hat. It's is not even really a watering hole. It's like, a, it's a it, he's pit. so desperate. It's like, it's a mud puddle. Yep. Uh, just disgusting, right? It's the, him and the burrow are just drinking from it. And lo and behold, gold hat and his two remaining banditos are there. And again, the tension on this, it's fantastic. The two creepy little dudes are crouching and just like hovering around at his feet. Uh, Gold Hat uh, is just weirdly menacing through this, but he realizes that Bogart is going to just try and bluff his way out of this. And it's just rising tension, rising tension. Like, what are those guys doing down there? And... And then it hits it hits its peak point and its uh, climax when Goldhat realizes that Bogart is the same one from the mountain. Mm-hmm. And then, well, I mean, he pulls a machete after Bogart's gun doesn't work; it's empty. He's lost count of it because he shot Curtin. Whatever. Goldhat pulls a machete from his pack, hits him twice. It's a blink and you miss it thing again, but you see and people look at something rolling and there's a little splash in the puddle. Bogart's decapitated and his head rolls into this puddle. And it's like, it's incredibly brutal without seeing a drop of blood. Right. And it's shocking. I know Bogart was killed in a million of his movies back when he was on like murderers row before he started being like a lead man. But I'm not as familiar with those earlier ones. It's like, Oh, well, shit, certainly they uh, killed Humphrey decap- Bogart. Certainly a decapitation was not common on in, in a movie in 1948. 
that's not common in too many movies full stop unless you're in well i mean this is before the era this is before the era of horror movies and slashers where you can get away with some of this so karma and stupid choices and making the wrong choice when fate is looking you at the in the eye the banditos by the way they rip off um bogart's pants and shoes strip him uh they put that stuff on which does actually come into play in a in a few moments they strip him they look at the burrows they think it's just furs and that there was sand just weighing down the packs yeah they dump it all out and it's like tight on the screenplay the characters mentioned earlier on like this is gold this just looks like sand sand yeah guys just think it's sand they break it up throw it away you know throw away their incredible fortune and then they just steal the burrows and take them back into town to sell them and the furs right which um they're recognized by that awesome character actor with that badass mustache by the way the mm-hmm. the, the burrow salesman and the kid they see that these were branded <clears throat> they recognize what it is they recognize the pants off that they call the, I was gonna say, the kid rec- the kid the kid recognizes the clothes Exactly. And they recognize the branding on the boroughs. Federales are called. Those three guys are thrown into a jail. Gold hats just spit literally spitting at people, which I thought was rather funny. And then, like I said, I'm going to walk back. My favorite part of the movie is they're digging their grave. And just the way that it's framed is hilarious. They're lined up against the wall and just the gold hat just pauses everything. I don't speak much Spanish, so I don't know what he actually said but he pauses the firing squad to grab his hat. So he's wearing that when he's killed and just like he grabs it. There's no fight. He just quickly steps back and they're shot. And there you yeah. go. Just hilarious moment at the end of it. Just like weird, like all the this whole thing is hilarious humor. because I mean, the whole thing is hilarious. I mean, because when the guy, the federal is and, and the guy's interrogating him, he obviously it's not subtitled, but he's just pretending like, Oh yeah, I found these. And Oh, you know, my memory is just not that good. But, uh, and then the guy says, well, that's not true. We know exactly where you got these. So I picked up on a fraction of that. Right. But I didn't miss any of it. Right. I don't right. I speak of, took a few years of Spanish, but it's just, it's efficient, great filmmaking where you don't have to know the language and you got it all. Yeah. So, um, Curtin and Houston are now with a bunch of their Indian friends right into town, kind of rapidly moving to the end of the story. They hear the Federales killed them, but overheard they threw out all this sand from their packs by the ruins. They go back out. They realize, or, you know, it was dumped out. Lo and behold, a uh, sandstorm comes up, blows away all the gold. It's right out of the killing. Um, all their and, and wealth how, is gone. Howard, but I love, you know, Howard and then Curtin's reaction. Howard starts just insanely laughing and, and Curtin joins in. Not even quite that easily, right? Because the way, just that turn from um, uh, Howard, right, is right. he sees it, he's just crazy crushed, right? But you can see that it all kind of dawns on him, the absurdity of it. I'm back like nothing, n- nothing was gained or lost. I've worked my way. Well, it's back the same kind of laugh that he had. It's the same kind of laugh that he had when he, when they wanted to quit. So I like right. that he retains that sense of he'll laugh at the, the humiliatingly ironic. 
Yeah, I mean, his character was very zen in that he it's just cyclic. You win some, you lose some, you lose everything sometimes, and it's just you're right back to where you started. So, yep, they have the last moment. Curtain is also devastated, but kind of just laughs along with it. And what you see is when he was in the uh, hammock eating grapes, practically, I'm like, man, he's got a pretty good life with uh, in this Indian tribe. And that's what it is. He's going to be their uh, medicine man, their Senate or whatever he said, their government. Legislature. He wanted them to be the whole legislature. (laughs) Yeah. So he's going to go back and just live in happiness there. It's basically what he wanted when they had the campfire talk. And Curtin ends up having a good attitude about this, saying he says something to the effect of, the only thing I'm out is the initial 200 bucks I put in. I'm no worse. Yeah, exactly. Which is... If you just look at it like coldly and analytically and remove the emotion from it, that's totally true. It is a little odd to me. I don't, I'm not entirely convinced it will be the happy ending, but it's implied he wanted to go back to an orchard. Well, there's this widow with a kid. They need a ranch hand. I'm going to go take Cody's life. Your whole thing with Cody is just bizarre. I didn't get that at all. Well, that's what they're saying. He's going to go back to that. He's going to take that letter. It's not by accident that he lived on an orchard and the script tells you that Curtin wants to be on an orchard there. He's going to try and take that life. It it just, that's what he's going to try and do. I'm not convinced that'll work, but that's what the movie's telling you. He's going to try and do. I'm, I'm certain of it. That's what the movie's telling you that he's trying to do. I don't think I'm all that far off because it's basically the two guys who are morally karmically pure. They get what they wanted and they were incorrect to think that the money had to get them that happiness. Right. That's the theme of the movie among many. It's, I don't know if it's anti-capitalism per se. I mean, there's an argument for that, right? But it's anti-personal greed. These guys figured out that it's money doesn't buy happiness. So it's going to be the case for Howard. It should be the case for Curtin. But that means he has to go off to that orchard. And maybe he's not going to take her as a wife. He wants to live on an orchard because that's what he idealized as his peaceful place that's his childhood home he wants to revert back to right so yeah i don't think i'm all that far off no nah, there you're implying he's taking the wife and the life come on now <laughs> oh he's gonna try he's been <laughs> homeless for forever you know there's a needy woman there you know he's got a consoler and it, man it's gonna happen and also it's there's worse things than a shave tim holt right no he's a handsome dude all right. Well, there you go, Matt. We're at the end. The last scene, by the way, is just the broken up bag of gold stuck on a cactus. There's some meaning there, I'm sure. So, all right. We're at the end. Matt, final thoughts. How do you think treasure, the treasure of the Sierra Madre <laughs> stood up? Great movie. I'm so glad I picked this and I'm so glad that we got around to it. Totally deserves to be on that AFI list great character study like it it, it's has a western background but it's much more of a character drama than it is a western Mm -hmm. and i i I loved it i thought the acting was phenomenal the direction superb um i'm so happy we watched this it's it's one of the best i if you're asking me that question from earlier i would say definitely top five 
All right. Uh, we'll dive into that a little bit more. But yeah, my final thoughts, like I totally agree. Right. It's a complex movie. There's a lot of themes here. We didn't necessarily dive into them, but one could argue it's a liber- like liberal democratic movie values of cooperation and trust. And I I will listen to the argument. I'm not sure if I believe it's anti-capitalism per se, but that's it. Plenty of it's there. I think it's a little bit more on just like the personal side, at least in that theme of know your limits, um, know what your how much do you trust yourself? You can't trust yourself is what the movie is kind of suggesting, right? Unless you are really tested on that. But there's all sorts of stuff here, too, right? So, you know, the ecological point of view, that was refreshing and like surprising to see in here. Everything about like karma and luck, just the wheels of fate, um, the respect given to, you know, the the Mexican actors and the culture down there. Uh, I mean, banditos were a real thing, right? At the time, that's not incorrect. So it's like the respect to Spanish, the language in it, all that stuff. It's like, yeah, this movie stood the test of time. It didn't feel old in any real way other than like a couple kind of older, older timing kind of acting styles at that time. But that's charming as hell. I, I that's not a criticism, right? Definitely. So yeah, absolutely stands up there. So yeah, Matt, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you a little bit on it. So let me pull up the list of what we have. But so if you go by letterboxd, which I think is a decent crowdsourcing type thing, we have a bunch of movies that are like a hundred percent on rotten tomatoes. Right. But treasure of this year, Madre purple noon, wait until dark blood, simple seven days in May. Curse of the Demons really up there. From Here to Eternity, Adam's Rib, Lolita. We have some pretty heavy hitters. Are you putting this up above all of them? Or do you think anything actually like eked it out slightly? God, that's tough. Um, I think my favorite thing that we still watch here, the one that pleasantly surprised me the most, was um, Adam's Rib. But um, mm-hmm. this one comes, I would say, as a second behind it. Ah, I wouldn't have guessed that. But that's totally respectable, right? Uh, for what it's worth, it is the highest rated movie uh, of our films on Letterboxd. And arguably the best one, um, I for personal favorite, which I can draw a distinction, Blood Simple and Seven Days in May, I think are... I like those we've watched some good stuff yeah and then you go down the list and then you have robot you know versus the aztec mummy marooned the great rupert right we don't have too many overt stinkers but it 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 drops down there the great rupert was just back on tcm again i just i saw it on the schedule yeah well matt speaking of schedule should we look and set our sights to may i know you have some good choices here Yeah, there's some themes that are emerging from this as well, or possible themes on the show. So it's my choice for May. The options are 1986's Hoosiers. A basketball coach gets one last chance at redemption at a rural Indiana high school. Gene Hackman. Uh, Arguably my favorite actor of all time. Really? I love my Gene Hackman. Oh, he's just wonderful. Yeah, I, I love Gene Hackman. 
1944's To Have and Have Not. A skipper for hire uh, hires romance with a beautiful drifter is complicated by his growing involvement with the French resistance. Howard Hawks directed another Humphrey Bogart option with uh, Lauren Lucio Bacall. Bacall. Well, Lauren Bacall. I wanted to say Lucille Ball because I it's so close to that. That would be a very different movie. It would. Yes. So. Could we slip into a Humphrey Bogart cast? Um, we could always possible. we could always re- we could always revert back to a John Wayne cast with their, your next choice. That's the pending threat starring John <laughs> Wayne. It's 1951's Operation Pacific. World War II submarine commander Duke Griffin manages a dangerous mission against the Japanese as he struggles with guilt over the death of his former commanding officer and the grief over his failed marriage. I wonder John if he, this is where he got the nickname Duke, but I can't honestly say. Next is 1969's The Color of Pomegranates. Uh, TCM's description for it is null, but I will just say <laughs> it is an absolutely batshit, insane av- Russian avant-garde art film. Uh, it's on YouTube in its completion. And it is bonkers. (laughs) So there you go. And then finally, continuing to look at Russia, we have 1979's Stalker. A mental mental mutant leads pilgrims to a mysterious room where dreams, dreams come true. And I will note, that description is, in fact, not accurate <laughs> for what it's worth. There, th- th- he's not a mutant, a mental mutant. I have no idea where I got that from, but <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Uh, Andre Tarkovsky, right? Um, pretty uh, important film there, too. So, Matt, what are your guesses? Where do you think I'll land and what would your preference be? Uh, I don't know where you're landing, I'm afraid, because you like off-the-wall things and going to be watching some avant-garde Russian bullshit, which I'm not <laughs> looking forward to. Um, my preference on this, I've always wanted to see to have and have not, because I, I love Lauren Bacall, and that's one of the movies I haven't mm-hmm. seen her yet, and it's arguably her most famous. I, I have no illusion that that's the one you're going to pick. I'll just be happy with it if it's not something Russian. Interesting. Okay, so I will at least tell you that The Color of Pomegranates, uh, I hate avant-garde. I think it's just pure, pretentious nonsense. And I get that's the point, but I think it's really stupid garbage. <laughs> so, no. Now, I'm, also you afraid you're gonna, watching that. I'm also afraid of the 161-minute film, Russian film. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me walk you through some um, process here. Um the Operation Pacific is just bog standard John Wayne, World War II, patriotism, boring crap. It's the opposite of some of that subversive stuff that we saw in like From Here to Eternity. Tremendously boring. I have no interest in that one. Right. Plus, I don't want this to be a John Wayne cast. I did flirt around with the idea of continuing with Humphrey Bogart. Right. I appreciate the shit out of him in this movie that we covered, but I'm not going with that. So it is coming down to my love of Gene Hackman and some Russian sci-fi. I oh, have please seen let both. it be Gene Hackman. It is in fact Stalker, 1979. Man, this, watch so, this. 
<laughs> no, we're watching it. I mean, you mm. owe me a, a punishment movie at some point. So I will say I have seen this. I have seen it recently. I am actually leaning in to show you my Criterion Collection Blu-ray I have for it. Uh. It is interesting as hell. We will have stuff to talk about, but I'm under no illusions. The movie is a bit of a chore, <laughs> but yeah, and you're it making, is it's a, it, interesting. It's great to know that it's it's, all, it's almost three hours. You're making me sit through a movie that's a chore that's almost three hours. Well, here's the thing, Matt. I shouldn't suggest this, but you have fast forward on your remote. The movie is padded. It is a creative decision to make you sit in this space. And it's meant to kind of give you vibes of what it is, but you can also just fast forward through it. So there's a lot of like lingering shots on disgusting cancer, uh, carcinogen saturated wastelands in Russia. It's interesting to see it's the intent is to have you sit and just live with that shit for a while in the movie and puts you into place with the characters. But like I said, you can just kind of fast forward to like air quotes action in the movie. I so hope a Russian satellite falls on you. I'm not going to give you the cheat code, but we're going, listen, I watched this. I'm going to do it again. We can do it. So it's stalker, uh, May 5th at uh 6 AM. So set your, uh, DVRs boys and girls. Um, I wouldn't say you need to, wake up to watch it. <laughs> it might put you right back to bed, but it's a good, it, it is a genuinely like a crazy odd one of a kind masterpiece. It's an experience. It'll be fun. We'll have shit to talk about. So there you go, Matt. I am not going to apologize. We'll have fun with stalker in a month. So that, to be that wraps things up. Ah, well, uh, your mileage will vary. So I think we did pose a couple questions. Would you kill Cody in this? I say yes. Would you kill Dobbs in this? I say yes as well. Let us know where you fall on this and let me know if I'm overly sadistic. I do have a streak of that occasionally. Oh, but email streak. over <laughs> at tcmchallenge at gmail.com. We can also be found on Facebook at TCM Challenge. We're kicking around on Twitter. Please die at some point, but I am writing the ship down, at least on my account, uh, at Pro Sub Zero, where I kind of basically track the movies and books I'm reading at the time, uh, you know, occasionally live tweeting them. So, Matt, where can we find you? Well, if you want to find me, first of all, streak my ass sadistic as hell <laughs> he would kill this poor innocent guy he wouldn't give anything to his wife and he's making me watch some russian bullshit next month so yes he's very sadistic <laughs> uh but if you want to you know at least give me sympathies on my pain you can find me at m hansen 0207 on twitter um talking all things movies and pop culture and there you go. If you like the show, we have, like I said, occasionally we have a nice little, very consistent audience. So thank you, everyone. Don't be a stranger. Drop a line. But like and, you know, uh, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get it. It really does help the show. Rate it five stars if you are so inclined. But with that, Matt, like I said, let's stay tuned for some very Russian, Russian cinema next month with the stalker or with stalker. I should say, I don't want to put an extra the in there with stalker. I'm Matt in Buffalo. And I'm Matt in Arizona. Thank you so much for joining us on this month's edition of the Matt and Matt TCM challenge. 
I think I'll go to sleep and dream about piles of gold getting bigger and bigger and bigger and not having to watch this fucking thing next month. It's not that bad.